But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's your death sentence for this week. Um, so Britain, hey, normal island. Am I right, folks? Normal island? We, we all, we all, we all did not being really normal in the UK right now. Um, yeah, we're on to our like, what is it like, our third prime minister of in two years. Um, so, because I had bought the book we're going to be talking about today, "Falling Down" by Phil Burton Cartledge, the Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain, I bought this uh, when it came out, which was uh, what like last year. Or the year before? Yeah, it was, it was September 21. Wow, yeah. I bought this thinking I would talk to Phil at the time, and because of my many mental problems, I uh, didn't get round to it. Um, but uh, now seems like the right time, because um, Britain has been intensely normal um, for the last few weeks, um, and it has led to... Uh, our current prime minister being uh, Rishi Sunak, um, as of time of recording, because God knows what's going to happen from now on. And I, I feel we need to like sit back, reassess, and figure out what's going on. And um, Falling Down seems to be the book to to help us with that, because it's uh, a very, very good, very incredibly readable um, introduction to the Conservative Party, uh, who... Because we, because I know that the majority of our listeners are in the US, um, are uh, what I think the the most successful right wing party in Europe. Am I am I getting that right? Not just the most right wing party, but the most successful um, party that stands in free and fair elections. Well, obviously, you know, oh, well. with that, some modification there, but most successful liberal democratic party in any liberal democracy anywhere ever. Wow, and. Um, just to introduce it to the Americans, because they're 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 an ignorant race. Um, <laughs> to to say that uh, the Conservatives are the equivalent of the Republican Party is probably incorrect, right? I mean, yes, they are the the main right wing party in the UK, but as we've already said, they are basically the party of government. Is that would that be? Yes. Would that be roughly accurate? Yes, yes, I, I would certainly certainly go along with that because obviously in the in the American system, you know, the Republicans occasionally give way to the Democrats and like well, and vice versa. Whereas here in Britain, it's much more of a kind of a, a Tory dominating affair. At least since the the late nineteenth century, the Conservative Party have been in power. I think off the top of my head, for about two thirds of the time, hmm. and. Um, and so the Britain that we see today, this very normal island, as you as you put it, this is a result of their very normal policies, more so than any other political party that exists on these islands. Yeah, and so as you mentioned in the book, that it, Britain has kind of gone through, I think, like three phases of the Whigs and the Whigs and Liberals, who no, no longer exist, then Conservatives, for around 120 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so how, how obviously the book itself kind of goes from the kind of Thatcher era forward, but just to give a little background, how, how did the Conservatives end up dominating the UK's politics so, so much and for so long? 
I suppose it's, I mean, this is a, this is a very vexed and complex debate and one that I, you know, I deliberately skirted over in the book because I could have written an entire chapter on it or in fact, you know, written an entire book on it itself. But kind of my assumption is that firstly, the Conservatives have adapted better to the reality of mass politics more so than others than other political parties, even though, of course, the Labour Party is a creature of mass politics itself. And I suppose the second part of why the Tories have proven so successful is that with that mass base that they had historically, which has shrunk in in recent years, um, but they use that mass base and kind of anchored it within the status structure of the UK. So, for example, it was one of my old uh, Labour Party comrades put it. She said that she, you know, growing up, when she was growing up in the 1950s, 1960s, she knew people who lived in, in inner city Stoke-on-Trent, where, where I live, who may have been a foreman in the pottery, you know, risen to foreman level in their pottery factory, and so had a bit more money, and were then able to move out to the countryside, or at least to the suburbs of Stoke-on-Trent. And they Uh, once they moved into their own house which they then owned they moved in different social circles and being a part of the conservative party and then voting conservative was a part of a kind of a distinction strategy a way of sort of saying to yourself and to others look i've made it you know i'm 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 a cut above the the rest of you so i think that that is some of it That, that certainly has a lot to do with it and also, particularly if you look back at the 1920s and 1930s, is one of the great untold stories of British politics, and there's only very few bits and pieces of scholarship on this, is the role that the Conservatives played in politicising the countryside. So it was, um, you'd have, um, during the 1930s in particular, you would have the Conservative Party and Conservative activists driving around rural communities uh, with vans with loudspeakers on them. But on those loudspeakers, they would play like radio programmes. They would, you know, occasionally they would show, show newsreels on those, um, on, on those, in those vans. And also very occasionally as well, believe it or not, the Conservative Party used to organise uh, local people in protest, so let's say, for example, if the local land landowner was being a bit too stingy with rents or was, you know, threatening rural life in some way, no, it would be Conservative Party activists who would be able to kind of tap into their seam of discontent and obviously drive it down a kind of a, a an avenue in which the whole system wasn't at all threatened. But it's still, nevertheless, they were able to establish a certain level of credibility as rural people by taking up rural issues. And it's things like that. Also, the role that charity plays as well has been incredibly important, too. Again, scholarship is emerging on this at the moment still. But it's a little known fact that the Conservative Party, in its during its heyday as a mass organisation, was predominantly an organisation dominated by women. It was women who were the main activists. Of course, it was the men who got sent to Parliament, but it was women who were the association secretaries. It was women that did all the the stuffing of the leaflets and did a lot of the campaigning. And it was women that organised the kinds of community events that the Conservative Party used to 
be present in 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 a lot of uh, rural areas so it's a mix of all those things and it's kind of it's mass based the role that it had in organizing you know rural life the um, its role in organizing charitable concerns and it's the position that the conservative party uh, came to occupy in a sort of hierarchy of status in this country and i think that any explanation that does not deal with those different uh, those different bits those different facets of conservatism are going to be left with a quite a one-sided explanation as to why the tories have been so successful mm. yeah and it's not going to be a, a very um intuitive explanation these days i mean being a, a tory is very low status if you're mm. under the age of 70 women are um not I'm guessing not a big part of the Tory activists anymore. And you know, being anti-landlord is about as far from the Tories <laughs> as it's possible to be right now. But, yeah. Um, just going back to uh, the women, like, has, has there been much um, discussion or research into why women? Is it just a case of, you know, the, like you said, the uh, a guy gets some money, moves out to the suburbs, mm becomes a conservative and his wife is now a conservative like a little package deal mm-hmm. and because she's not working she does the activism as in her spare time or or are they like genuinely infused by the policies and the platform i think well in, in much the same way that i'm sure that that some of your listeners have been involved in kind of democratic politics um, well, have found that all kinds of people uh, get involved in the Democrats for all kinds of reasons and we've been shocked that some of them get over there for reasons that are entirely non-political. My, my hunch is that you've got to look at what we sometimes refer to, the scholarship refers to as associational life. And that is, say, for example, that our hypothetical foreman work, moves out to the suburbs or out to the countryside, gets a nice house and so on. What does the uh, what does well he's at work during the day? What does his wife do? Well, obviously, you know, if they've got kids, because this being you know nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, they look after the kids, bring them up. But while they're at school, they'll get involved in other things, such as you know, organizing for the school fete, or um, you know, um, kind of whip arounds for re- for refugees from the war, or um, you know any kind of charitable activity you can think of. And it's through, and also, of course, the church is also important. And it's through those kind of those networks, you know, getting to know other women, um, that a lot of women were introduced into conservative politics. And it was from there that they get involved in the in the kind of the activist side of things. So it might not even be a kind of a big P political thing, but it's rather an extension of their kind of their friendship networks or their networks that they build up through their charitable work or through um, going to church and, and that sort of thing. So you'd find very few kind of, I mean, you might find some that were kind of diehard ideologues amongst their number, but most of them wouldn't be. And I mean, at its height, the Conservative Party had 2.7 million members and, um, and it was primarily because of the social side of things. You know, the Conservatives used to run in a lot of cities, a lot of big cities and a lot of towns used to have Conservative clubs. And the role of those Conservative clubs would be, you know, provide a, a drinking, a place for drinking, obviously, for, for men. But they also be had a community focus, a community purpose to them as well. So when they weren't being used for drinking, you know, uh, women might use them during the day for kind of, you know, lunches, meeting up, 
that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's a social side that's really, you know, really important. I mean, even from my own experience in the Labour Party, I know plenty of people in the Labour Party don't really have any politics, but are there because they found a group of friends and go along primarily for social reasons. And that was really the key for the Conservatives back in the day. So let's uh, fast forward a bit from the kind of 30s, 50s to uh, kind of where the book starts in chronologically, at least um, with Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing she probably needs no introduction. But what was the conditions in Britain like that kind of permitted Thatcher to exist and, and come into pr- to power? OK, so in the. In the 1970s, you know, the 1970s in the British press and in kind of mainstream politics is characterised as a moment of economic crisis because you had <coughs> rising unemployment, you had the, the post-war consensus that tried to establish a sort of a balance between labour and capital had started breaking down and, um, you know, the economy was in the toilet and the, uh, the Chancellor, the Labour Chancellor, had to go cap in hand to the International Monetary Fund for a loan. So kind of like a major, major kind of a scene of a major crisis of legitimacy, if you like. And I think that characterisation on the kind of economic side of things is a bit overdone. But what was certainly the case was the crisis in class relationships in the kind of relationships of production that capitalism depends upon, i.e. the fact that you have owners who own the capital, who employ classes of workers to work in their workplaces to create uh, products for them, which they then sell on the market in return for, um, you know, in, in return for a profit down, down the road. Um, and so what Thatcher offered, if you like, to the ruling class of, of Britain was a way of kind of stamping down on that you know workers have got too uppity through the 1970s you know in response to uh, the abandonment of Bretton Woods by the United States government and rising inflation across the western world plus increases in uh, uh, the price of fuel as well you know workers responded to those inflationary pressures by going on strike and winning higher pay and so the 1970s was a time in which trade union organisation and working, working class self-activity was at a high in this country. And of course, when workers enter into struggle, they implicitly, if not explicitly, represent a threat to the rule of capital. They represent a threat to management's right to manage. And so Thatcher came along and she had a plan which you know can debate how worked out this plan was, but she had a plan. Uh, to put all of that back in its box and make Britain a, a country fit for capital again. Obviously, if you look at the 1979 manifesto and if you look at her rhetoric at the time, she kind of avoids these kind of very stark terms. She talks about, you know, industrial peace, um, you know, making sure that everyone is fair, has the right to work and, and so on. So for the mass, she kind of... she promised a kind of a sense of industrial peace, a kind of a a life in which you can just live your own life and just get on with it without being bothered by things. Whereas, of course, the ruling class, you're saying, you know, get me in and I'll sort them out. One um, kind of idea I've heard 
before was that um, Thatcher was kind of prefigured by Enoch Powell, who mm. I guess a lot of American listeners aren't going to know about. He was uh, kind of alongside Oswald Mosley, probably one of the most evil people in British politics. <laughs> um, that his kind of authoritarian populism, race baiting, um, his other ideas, apart from just the, the rivers of blood stuff, um, was kind of Thatcher before Thatcher. Yeah. Is is that uh, what? Do, what do you make of that idea? Is, is was the person I who wrote that um, talking out their ass? Yeah, I think I th- no, no, they weren't talking out their <laughs> ass. <laughs> no, and no, I'm just, I'm just, uh, just had a nice thought of all your American listeners laughing because we said ass. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't. Um, he goes because Enoch Powell, yes, he was an authoritarian. He was a racist, but he was a kind of a patrician. You know, he was in that tradition of. Patrician, patrician authoritarianism of like, you know, leave things to your betters, your social betters know what's best for you. He wasn't a kind of a straight out and out fascist, but economically speaking, he was attracted to neoliberal ideas that were coming out of the Mont Pelerin society and were starting to circulate in kind of academic circles and in think tank circles by the early to mid-1970s. But, of course, his Rivers of Blood speech made him too hot to handle, if you like, to be put forward as a viable candidate for leader of the Conservative Party. And likewise, um, Keith Joseph, who was a um, another Tory politician who was a big influence on, on Thatcher, when he discovered what we call today neoliberal economics... Um, he could have also been a standard bearer, but he was rather unfortunately made a racist speech of his own as well, which meant that he'd only ever be in the shadows. So even then, you know, kind of characterise the 1970s as a lot more racist then than they are than Britain is today. And that was certainly true. But racism did come with its costs. Open racism on the part of politicians did come with costs back then. Um, and so... Yes, you know, you could. Uh, there, an argument could be made that Powell did prefigure Thatcher in many ways, but the extent to which Thatcher actually looked at Powell and kind of saw him as a as a model, I think, is 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 a bit dubious. Um, Keith Joseph is certainly someone that Thatcher looked up to and, and was advised by uh, quite closely. I think that any kind of relationship that she had to Enoch Powell was bit, perhaps a bit more coincidental, unless other people know better, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. Um, <laughs> I'll have to ask that Enoch Powell time. guy. <laughs> but um, um, something you mentioned there that uh, Powell, Powell was kind of a patri- old patrician authoritarian, whereas um, Thatcher being the famously the daughter of a greengrocer, mm. um, had had a bit more of a working class pedigree to her. And it, from what it sounds like, there was, at the time, there was a move from the kind of um, landed gentry, old old British aristocracy to conservatives, uh, conservative MPs who were working class, middle class, mm. kind of regular people. Is that Was that something that... Um, why was that happening at that time, and what has that kind of meant for the party? I think I think this was quite significant as well. And this is a, an argument that I nicked off a Tory journalist called Geoffrey Wheatcroft, but don't worry, he he gets his full references in in the book. 
And the argument is that as the post-war period uh, kind of ground on, you know, the, the kind of that generation of aristocratic Tories kind of started to die out. And because the Conservative Party in the post-war period was a mass organisation, unsurprisingly, some of that mass would then be elevated to parliamentary level. And the people that entered into Parliament overwhelmingly were not from Aristo backgrounds. They tended to be, you say some were from kind of working class backgrounds, some were from kind of business nouveau riche backgrounds, and some were from the kind of the so-called you know, self-made man uh, backgrounds. And the things they all had in common was they had little kind of fealty to the post-war arrangements. So if you look at a prime minister like Harold Macmillan, for example, now Harold Macmillan for the American listeners was a you know conservative prime minister who was um, who served. I'm having to remember my my history here. He served from the late 1950s through to the early 1960s. And um, Macmillan's politics, his you know his Tory politics, were forged during the Depression. You know, he saw himself, you know, the Jarrow March, you know, unemployment in cities, the misery that the Depression caused in in Britain, and as a Aristo, he kind of was filled with the belief that, you know, his class as the ruling class were failing those at the bottom because he felt a responsibility towards you know, the little people. They were his charges, um, if you like. And this kind of patrician politics permeated the Conservative Party in that early post-war period. Um, and he believed that not only is it a good case that you have to look after the little people out of moral obligation, but also you have to look after working class people, otherwise they'll go into open revolt because, and they would make the argument that Bolshevik Russia and Nazi Germany are results of what happens if you don't pay attention to these kinds of issues. Now, in the post-war period, as, as this new group of people started moving up into the Conservative Party, you know, these were people that did not have that same experience. They did not obviously did not grow up during the Depression. They've kind of only really experienced trade unions as a pain in the arse. So if they were kind of, a, you know, someone who's a small business owner, for example, who entered into Parliament, they'd have experienced trade unions either as people who disrupted their deliveries or people that were trying to organise their workers and ask for higher wages. So had a clear lack of interest in making sure that unions were part of the institutional setup. And Thatcher typified this because Thatcher herself, her, her, her dad owned two greengrocers in, um, in Grantham and he was a liberal alderman. He was a member of the local establishment around there. So Thatcher kind of grew up as a kind of in a petty from a petty bourgeois background, you know, small business background. And so she had those kinds of prejudices that all petty bourgeois have, you know, the, the need for a sort of a, an authoritarian leader and um, a desire for stability and a kind of an antipathy towards the lower orders because, you know, they're making something of themselves while the lower orders are not, but also a fear of, an envy of, and also a slight hostility towards those who are above them as well. And throughout Thatcher's career, which we may want to talk about in a bit, these kind of her, her particular, her government and her style of politics swung between those two kind of extremes of, of socking it to the trade unions, but at the same time, do, you know, pulling off, um, you know, um, 
political schemes that would hurt or get rid of some of her more aristocratic or high-minded rivals. Mm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, so I think we have earned the right to go into Thatcher herself here now. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, something that's kind of almost a cliche among the leftish, pretty much anywhere left of the centre-left in the UK, is that we're still living in Thatcherite Britain. Mm -hmm. She's been Prime Minister since 1979, and even after her death, she is still... Mm-hmm. Everyone, every prime minister of my lifetime has been a Thatcherite, mm-hmm. including Tony Blair, who was called her greatest achievement. Mm-hmm. So, what what is Thatcherism well, exactly? How how do we define that? I, I know massive question, but yes, sorry. yeah. Well, I um, I mean, I, I kind of use two definitions in the book, and um, one of the definitions is one that is kind of like the common sense definition, if you like, that is is current on a lot of the left and this is the idea that thatcherism is comprised of an authoritarian state so you know increases the kind of um the powers of the police more uh, funding to armed forces you know emphasizes nuclear deterrence um where the country has a nuclear deterrent um kind of erodes democracy and civil liberties but at the same time as doing that also seeks to curtail workers movements and smash up labor movements if need be using the the forces that the state has available to it and also you know privatization of bits and pieces of the state and using the state to create new markets um, as well so sort of a kind of a market fundamentalism if you like is a kind of the common sense view of how thatcherism is so if you look at thatcher's program during the 1980s these are all the things that she did you know she increased the the strength of the state she increased the shackles that were on trade unions she used the police to break trade unions particularly in the minor strike of 1984-85 and also she privatized british gas british telecom and the water and electricity companies in this country and introduced a a kind of a a revolution. She introduced markets into the public sector and also sold off a lot of council housing or what you might call social housing to the owner occupant to transform a whole layer of working class people into owner occupiers and in theory making them more likely to vote conservative in the future so that's the kind of the the usual and that's usually where the left stops when it comes to thatcherism but in addition to that i think we need to talk about issues of governance and governmentality as well and i'll take my kind of my drop-off point here is the work of of uh, foucault in his late lectures on neoliberalism which have then been kind of popularized by uh, wendy brown and also uh, propagated further by uh, Dardo and Lavelle in their New Way of the World on Neoliberal Society. And it's basically the argument that neoliberalism is more than just markets. It's about a way of being. And the uh, institutions in Western societies from Thatcher onwards have been all about trying to mould this way of being. You know, as Thatcher once said in, a, in a, an interview, she said that Economics is the means, but the object is a transformation of the soul. I'm really badly paraphrasing here. 
And so when you start seeing in in the 1980s, what Thatcher starts doing is introducing more and more market mechanisms and trying to mould more and more people as they engage in public institutions as if they are consumers. And so he's trying to kind of create this consumerist mindset and effectively trying to turn millions of people, masses of people, into, for want of a better phrase, mini capitalists. They're trying to kind of think, trying to make us into the sort of the rational homo economicus that you might find in the pages of Adam Smith. You know, that's the object. That's where we want to go. And Thatcher didn't do this because she thought that this was the most efficient way of organising things. But it was also, you know, just so happened to be a way of ensuring that it made collective bargaining and workers coming together that bit more difficult if they started looking at everything as if it's a consumer transaction. It broke down bonds of solidarity between communities and also between service users and service providers. So I can tell you, for example, when I was unemployed in the in the late 1990s and went to the job centre, you know, the it was certainly the case that some of the job centre advisors I met there did not see me as anything other than, you know, um, just some kind of scrounger on the state. And of course, by the way that they treated me, I didn't feel any particularly warm towards them either. And it was this kind of like dog eat dog, you know, this idea of war against, of all against all, of people constantly competing with each other for resources. This is what neoliberal subjectivity is all about. And this is what Thatcher introduced into Britain in the 1980s and was bedded down subsequently by John Major, Tony Blair and and everyone that has followed. So while there is a debate now about whether Thatcherism is over, that debate around Thatcherism being over is around the kind of free markets and privatisation side of things. When it comes to neoliberal subjectivity and neoliberal governance, I think that side is still very much alive. Brilliant place to uh, end the first half, I reckon. Great. Um, Yeah, thanks for that. so yeah, well, let's we'll talk about what's happened more recently in the next yeah, half. Course. But uh, first, let's do some uh, a little musical break, just to just uh, refresh everyone's palate a little bit, because yeah, the taste of Thatcherism is still on our lips here. So, um, as uh, long-time listeners of this show know, the only thing that can defeat conservatism as a movement is uh, death metal. Uh, so um, we're going to play Rip to Shreds. Um, they are a they're a weird project. They're one dude from the United States who writes and records all the songs, but then he has hired a bunch of guys from China to um, play the songs live because I guess he doesn't like playing live. Maybe he's shy. Um, so it's a, it's a great example of outsourcing how the global markets can provide uh, even the death metal community with um, the services they need. Uh, we've played them on the show before. They've got a new album called uh, Jubian out, and we're going to play a track off that called Peregrination to the Unborn Eternal Mother. Peregrination to the Unborn Eternal Mother. Just great death metal uh, track title there, just real really rolls off the tongue but um here's ripped shreds
Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I quite find, I mean, I used to be a metaler years, years ago. Sadly, during the whole kind of new metal phase. Uh, but I was oh, in we got, it. We got some new coming up, actually. You, you'll, be, you'll be very uh, excited about the last track if you're, if you're all new metal, like, <laughs> like I was. I was into, yeah, but... you know, I was into White Zombie and Marilyn Manson when Marilyn Manson was, wasn't problematic or not as problematic as he is now. Yeah, we, we did know at the time, but yeah. But uh, yeah, White, White Zombie's Astro Creep 2000 was... Oh, like amazing album. The, yeah, that was like the soundtrack of my being about, uh, from about 11 to 14. Oh, I, I didn't have that excuse. I was a bit older. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it, though. Astro Creep 2000 is such a, it's such a great album. It's brilliant. It is, yeah. I don't know if I could listen to it now, though. <laughs> it's I, I I went back to it. It still mostly holds up. Mm. M- mostly, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it holds up a lot better than a lot of the other, a lot of the, like the new metal that was really new metal. Because yeah, him and Marilyn Manson were kind of like just before that, and they were kind of like one of the bands. If you like Corn, you'll also like Marilyn Manson, but. Yeah. Uh, well, one band I really did like and really did rate was was Drain. Did you ever come Drain? across them? They were kind I of haven't. they're women metalers from uh, oh. from I think they were from Sweden, and their um, I don't mind was one of the heaviest songs at that time I'd ever ever heard. It was just really and no, and I heard it, and then my mate told me, oh, it was a, it was a woman who was singing that. At the end, I was like, what? Women do because this is when women do metal. Was like what? <laughs> it still is in some sectors of the yeah, yeah, um, yeah but uh so yeah so let's get back into part two yeah, then because sure. because uh, we get so thatcher has um changed the soul of the british nation the everything has been sold off um and I think I'm going to skip the 90s because John Major, no one wants to talk about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Blair, I think everyone has a pretty good idea of. Uh, but so we're coming into basically what has, hap- what has happened to Britain as a result of Thatcher's changes to our politics in the 70s through 80s, um, going into 90s almost. And so kind of when things like brexit are starting to appear on the scene what where are we as a nation by that point like what what has happened to us okay so you kind of have to see this in a bit of context of cycles of conservative support because there's always been kind of cycles of tory support over the 120 years that they've dominated british politics and you have to think about the 1990s as a point where one period of conservative domination was coming to the end, to its end. And the reason why it was coming to its end was because effectively, you know, Thatcherism depends on privatising services or what you might call, you know, enclosing the, the commons, as David Harvey puts it. And it requires constant battles against different sections of the population. And in the end, you either run out of people to battle or you've battled so many people that they won't give you time of day. And that's pretty much what happened during the case of the 1990s. You know, when Thatcher was deposed um, from a rebellion in the Conservative Party, it was again because she had taken on too many people. The precipitating factor was the poll tax. And the poll tax was basically before the poll tax, 
every household in Britain had to pay something called the rates. And the rates was a tax that went to help fund local government. So when Thatcher came in, uh, one of her objects, again, it was a neoliberal project, was to change, you know, increase the rates to, to something that she called the community charge. But different local authorities would be able to um, effectively offer lower community charge if they were run by a local authority or by a local party that had cut all the services. So, you know, if there's not if there's, if a local council doesn't doesn't provide loads of services, therefore it doesn't need as much funding. Therefore, it can pass on cuts in council to, uh, into poll tax to its. Um, to the council, sorry, to the poll tax payers. But because it effectively involved doubling the prices and making every person pay rather than every household pay, it was seen as a direct attack on working class people and it created a a mass non-payment movement of about 18 or 19 million people who refused to pay it. Plus also there was numerous big demonstrations around towns and cities in the country which culminated in a a quarter of a million strong march in London, which descended into the into a riot, in which the the police did not come off too well in that riot either. So that was the kind of the precipitating factor to Thatcher's demise. And then when John Major took over from him, he had a little bit of goodwill and he was able to win a, a, a general election. But as soon as he stumbled, he made a couple of mistakes. You know, the the UK was ejected from the exchange rate mechanism and uh, which was a, a means of pegging the pound to the Deutschmark so in a way to try and prepare the ground for the introduction of the euro later on. And also they moved to close the remaining pits and also they introduced value-added tax on fuel bills, which meant a lot of pensioners who were in poverty at that particular point in time were going to suffer. So the Tory party collapsed because basically they made too many enemies. Now, but... During the course of that collapse, the seeds for the next um, round of Tory success had been sown because during the early 1980s, as I already said, one of the things that Thatcher did was she allowed millions of people who lived in council houses, who were tenants in council housing, which is subsidised public housing, um, to buy their council houses at a discounted rate. And many of them did. And Thatcher also encouraged people to acquire property. You know, mortgages were cheap. So, for example, my parents, who, you know, have always had low paid working class jobs while they were uh, during their working lives, were able to afford a modest house and now are homeowners. And so this home ownership then, you know, more and more people were becoming homeowners. But at the same time, Thatcher and subsequent Conservative governments and also to Tony Blair's uh, eternal damnation, did not build any social social housing or enough social housing to meet demand, which meant there was a housing shortage. And so you have this situation by 2010, in which increasing numbers of younger people can't get on the housing ladder because prices are so high, and more and more of them are being shoved into renting by people who um, who are overwhelmingly older who own all the property. And it's this is the context, you know, for the rise in the Conservatives from 2010 onwards. Because if people are engaged in property ownership, as Thatcher forecast, 
they're more likely to act in more conservative ways. It individuates you. You're less likely to go on on strike if you if you have a mortgage, and and all the rest of it. You kind of, in fact, you you identify your interests not in ter- in class terms with your fellow worker. You identify your interests with your ever increasing value of your house or your other houses that you happen to own, and so effectively. As this generation started hitting retirement age, and my parents of this generation, they retired about five or six years ago, so very much part of this, that you start to see that the over 65s, and particularly older people, turning massively towards the Conservatives. And what the Conservatives did in 2010 was, while they were promising to cut public sector, you know, to hold down wages and all the rest of it, at the same time, David Cameron, who was then the Conservative leader, promised to um, shield pensioners, older people from the worst of these cuts. So he introduced what is called the triple lock, which means that pensions are guaranteed to go up in any given year by a livable amount. And so, if you like, he was able to shield all the pensioners from all the cuts that they administered between 10, 2010 up until when Cameron left office in in 2016. And that pensioner support remained solid. It's also this pensioner support that is primarily fixated on Brexit. Uh, Hmm. I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into into that, Gareth? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy, do I want to go into Brexit. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's it's something that, uh, again, a lot of our American listenership and people outside the UK you're going to know about you're going to know roughly what it is but the the economic and I mean, primarily psychological reasons for it are are very interesting um because mm. it was um i mean a, a lot of people have basically described it as a, a like a mass psychodrama rather than a political act that it was something that um you know your racist dads in the home counties felt that they had to do um, and is to kind of maintain their political virility rather than something that was supposed to actually deliver us the sunlit uplands and mm. actually make people in Britain richer because it has failed in that regard. So, yeah, wh- where did Brexit come from? What because that leads us on to the star of our show, Boris Johnson, I feel. So, yes, I think uh, we should get uh, Brexit out of the way first. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a long explanation, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, uh, no problem. So we've got to kind of locate, there's kind of two sources of, of Brexit, because if you go back to the 1990s again, you find that the Conservative Party not only is unpopular, but while it's, being, while it's unpopular, it's torn apart by disputes, factional disputes about Europe, about its relationship to the European community and then what became the European Union. And why was this? And Thatcher herself as well, she, in the 1970s, she was an enthusiastic pro-European, but then during her her time as Prime Minister, she became increasingly uh, Eurosceptic. And even though Thatcher died in 2013, had she still been around in 2016, I am convinced that she would have supported and voted for Brexit. Now, why? What's going on here? So there's two things. So firstly, there's always been a division in the ruling class in this country between, you know, which way should Britain face? Should it face more towards the continent, 
because of course that's where the markets are or should it you know follow the legacy of empire and look more towards the rest of the world and particularly the united states and so you have this debate within the ruling class particularly in the city of london because the city of london you can't really understand ruling class politics in britain without understanding that the position that the city of london occupies in the british economy is the kind of is seen by pretty much all governing elites in this country whether they are conservative liberal labor you know center left whatever they all believe that the city of london is the goose that lays the golden egg and it is because um, we, we should point out to Americans by city of London, we don't mean literally yes. the city of greater London. The, the city of London is a like a town, uh, like a separate entity that exists in the middle of the, the city of greater London and is where most of the finance in the yes. UK is based. It's a bit like, so. you know, it's, it's, it's like Americans talking about Wall Street. So, you yeah. know, when I say city of London, think Wall Street. Um, and so what the city of London and the city of London is, of course, one of the great financial clearing uh, houses of the world. You know, you can go there, you can launder your dirty money. It'll come out clean. Um, you know, you go there, you know, for brokerage yeah, services. To not interrupt again, but um, that really that part really can't be understated that the city of London is the world's financial crime center every <laughs> every uh repressive regime every terrorist group every drug cartel it's all coming through london mm. um yes yeah that cannot be understated enough yeah it's, and that's it a is. significant part of the uk's income right now is you know laundering yeah. money for isis and the median cartel and so but, the uh, british sorry, the, yeah it's okay on. so the british bourgeoisie have an interest because a lot of the british ruling class are tied up with it with these um with this turnover of the, of the world's dirty money, if you like. And so they have an interest in, in maintaining it. And, um, and so this is one of the reasons why the UK is relatively underdeveloped compared to other industrial countries, even though it was the first country to industrialise because of the role of the City of London. Hmm. And now the City of London, of course, there's interest in the City of London. Do they kind of look towards the rest of the world or do they look towards Europe for... You know, investments for more brokerage and fees and, and so on and so forth. And so that's the debate in the wider ruling class about which section should British capital go towards. But also, if that was it or all, you know, that wouldn't necessarily produce such fervid um, fanaticism on the part of some Conservative MPs, because ultimately it comes down to a question of statecraft as well. Because one thing that... Uh, Thatcherism is an authoritarian project. And one thing that Thatcher did all throughout the 1980s was that she effectively centralised power within the British state. British state. So all capitalist states are effectively constellations of institutions with the government at the top as the executive and all the bits of other pieces of the institution having relative degrees of autonomy from one another. All of them are governed in the last instance, by the, uh, the the government at the top. What Thatcher did was increase the supervision of the government at the top and the direct patterns of command over different bits and pieces of the British state into seemingly inconsequential areas where you'd think no one would have any business. So, for example, you know, the Secretary of State in the Department of Education um, 
directing how teachers should be trained, for example, and what teachers should be learning as they are trained as teachers, which seems, you know, absurd micromanagement, but this is what Thatcher did. Now, what Thatcher, part of her project then was about getting rid of barriers to what the executive can do. So she rooted out all these kind of autonomous or semi-autonomous bits and pieces within the British state that could act as a check on her power. She altered the law. So the the law itself was less of a check on the influence of the executive. And so gradually, you know, the British state became more and more authoritarian to the point where, you know, there was effectively only one barrier left to the government, preventing the government from doing what it wanted to do. And that was the European community or the European Union. So the clashes that Thatcher had with the European community during the 1980s were usually of a, of a case that she wanted to do something in Britain, but European law said no. And so she came increasingly in conflict with this, with the European Union. And so this is where this concern, this Tory concern with sovereignty comes in. You know, you find a lot of conservative politicians banging on about the needs to Know, Brexit freedoms and sovereignty. But what Brexit freedoms and sovereignty mean is basically freedom for the executive, freedom for the government to do as it pleases. Yeah, I remember seeing a survey of, of Conservatives uh, about what they wanted out of Brexit around the time it was happening. The answers were things like uh, capital punishment, uh, caning in schools, um, incandescent light bulbs, were like twenty, like twenty five percent wanted incandescent light bulbs back. Apparently, <laughs> they want to pay more for electricity. Um, yeah, it was, it was basically um, this atavistic um, authoritarianism. They wanted, they wanted more of. Yeah, uh, yeah, just more children getting beat up, more people getting hung, that kind of thing. <laughs> Pretty much, but now this had had a mass appeal to older people because one. Now, the Conservatives have made it very clear through the period of austerity between 2010 and the Brexit referendum in 2016 that old people would be shielded from the consequences of their votes. And so, for example, um, there was one report, a vox pop of an old of a guy who was perhaps in his mid-60s in the northeast, and the um the interviewer asked him, you know, which way did you vote in the in the referendum? He said, I voted to leave the European Union. And he said, but, you know, you've got Nissan here locally. Um, and he says, yeah, my son works there. And he says, well, didn't you, why didn't you vote to stay in? Are you not worried that Nissan might leave because of the trade barriers that will go up in relation to future relationship between Britain and the European Union? And he said, yeah, I didn't vote Brexit for him. I voted Brexit for me. So kind of a sense of selfishness that was the, a kind of sense of entitled selfishness that kind of crept into into this. But also from from their standpoint as well. Again, remember, one argument that I make in the book is that as people retire, you know, as a consequence of property ownership and the experience of retirement as well as itself, it's a kind of a social location that is not entirely dissimilar to that of a small business person as a petty bourgeois because of a fixed income. You're not, you're kind of unmoored, you're kind of free of workplace relationships. There's no kind of natural collectivism that you drift towards. And so this helps explain why old people 
in Britain disproportionately vote conservative. And you see similar patterns in the United States and elsewhere as well. You know, older people, because of property ownership and retirement, tend to vote more for centre-right parties. But we'll leave that argument to one side at the moment. Mm. And so they were drawn to Brexit because Brexit was a means of kind of producing a society that they felt more familiar with, an opportunity to go back to when things were better, in their view, Mm -hmm. when things were cheaper, when there was less people um, speaking strange foreign languages when they would go down the city centre. So it was a kind of a, as you say, it's an atavistic throwback. It's a kind of a nostalgia. And that cultural politics of nostalgia that is intrinsic to Brexit cannot be dislocated from the very peculiar sort of class location that you occupy as a retired property owner. Hmm. And that kind of brings up uh, the next question, which is, who are conservatives nowadays? Mm. A re- retired property owner seems to pretty much sum it up. But is, is there anyone else? Is, do they have a, a, a coalition of different interests, um, kind of like the Labour Party do, where it, Labour Party could be like a, a middle class working professional, college educated, and so on, mm. or it could be a, a very poor person who like needs uh, su- support in a society backing them up. Yeah. Well, disproportionately, you know, the core Tory support is older people. And in Britain, as in other countries, older people are much more likely to turn out to vote than younger people. So if you win older people, it's almost like, you know, win one pensioner, it's probably worth three votes of someone who's aged between 18 to 24, because they will certainly turn out. So pensioners are the core element. But also you've, you've got, there's always been a section of the working class in this country who've who support have historically supported the conservatives though that is really shrunk since uh, since 2005 um but people who consider themselves upwardly mobile people who've got themselves onto the property ladder or or workers who own their own homes they are more likely to vote conservative than than people who are renting for example and also you've got the class of petty landlords as well there's about I think I read somewhere 1.2, 1.3 million landlords in this country. And overwhelmingly, they will vote Conservative because very clearly Conservatives do set themselves up as a landlord's party. And that's pretty much the size of their, their coalition. But this is the problem that they've got, is that they can no longer reproduce that coalition because that property acquisition that I talked about earlier on means that you know, if younger people aren't getting onto the housing ladder, that means that they are not experiencing the conservatising effects of property as they age. You know, people my age, under the age of 50, you know, by a massive majority would vote Labour at, at the next election. Indeed, there was a poll that came out the other day which showed that in the, uh, in the under 49s, the Conservatives were on 7%. And Labour on something ridiculous like 68, 69%, you know, 62 point lead. It's utterly absurd. And this is a problem the Tories got. And this is why the Tories are, as I argue in the book, are in decline. It's because their, their core support, their voter coalition, the people that will vote for them, is in sharp decline. And that coalition is not reproducing itself. Hmm. And moving forward to the last few months, where we've had this, like, rapid succession of different prime ministers i think was it like four home secretaries this Mm. year something along those lines um 
is that a, like central contradiction? This, the this, like uh, this thing that's causing this decline of conservatism. Is that part of why what what has happened in this last few months? I think you can you can certainly make that argument, and I do, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Mm. Um, if you like, it's always been an ever present difficulty in the background, whether some Tories acknowledge it or not. And so you could argue that the 2019 general election result in which Boris Johnson was able to secure a majority of 80 seats in Parliament and the highest vote since 1992 for any political party, and the highest number of absolute votes since 1992. Um, you know, this was kind of seen as a triumph of the Conservative Party and that they were going to be in, in power at least for another decade. And you just have to see how quickly it's all unraveled. Now, you could say that this is because of Boris Johnson's foibles. You know, he's a man who is incredibly lazy, an inveterate liar, um, you know, someone who is you know, the most authoritarian prime minister we've had since Thatcher, despite his jokey personality, and someone who's just very careless. Um, you know, he's, um, you know, the, the kind of the Partygate scandal, which some of your viewers may have, some of your listeners may have heard about, where he parted in Downing Street whilst the rest of the country languished under COVID restrictions, which would allow and didn't allow people to meet up was a massive pain in the backside for Johnson. And then, it, but he just carried on this arrogant behaviour of of covering for friends and allies to the point where he basically brought a, a sexual predator into the heart of the Downing Street operation and covered it up and he got found out about it, which is why he was forced uh, to resign. But you can say that his programme was a, a means of trying to circumvent or at least trying to find a solution to this Tory coal voter coalition problem. And indeed, it was Theresa May, the, his predecessor, who pointed this out to him, because in the 2017 election, you know, the Conservative performance in vote terms was one of its best performances um, since, you know, she had a bigger vote than some uh, Thatcher's victories. But because Labour had a bigger vote, because the opposition was united behind the Labour Party, she lost her majority in the House of Commons, but by doubling down on Brexit and therefore going for that, you know, that pensioner vote and that kind of uh, that wider sort of propertied workers vote and anyone else who, who voted Brexit, the kind of flotsam jetsam of people that voted Brexit outside of that, she was able to build a formidable coalition and Johnson doubled down on that in, in 2019. But it could only be a temporary thing. It was it could only ever have been a high point because it did not really solve the contradictions of that voter coalition. It did not it did not draw new people to the Conservative Party. It drove mostly older people, older propertied people who may have voted Labour in the past but are heading in a Conservative direction anyway to the Tories. It accelerated that process. But younger people working age people. Now, even in 2019, which was the scene of the great Conservative victory, Labour still won the majority of votes in the under 55s amongst working age people. So um, that's the problem that the, the Tories have got, and they've got no solution whatsoever to dealing with it. How do you appeal to working age people? How do you appeal to you know, younger people, people who you want to vote Conservative in the future? There are no answers that they have. Hmm. And so, 
that brings us to kind of Liz Truss, who um, did kind of Thatcherism speed run, where she just <laughs> managed to uh, managed to do kind of what you said earlier. She made too many enemies, but she did it in in the space of about two weeks. Mm. She pissed off the Bank of England, the bond markets, um, the woke bond markets, I should say. Yes. Um, incredibly woke, all these stock traders. Um, and that got her to a point where she, her government collapsed in, mm. yeah, it was, like, was it like six weeks? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> 44 yeah, was, days. That's right, yeah. She was uh, beaten by that lettuce. As, mm. um, yeah. So, I, it, am I right here that she she basically just did Thatcherism too fast and kind of you know you, if you're boiling a lobster in a pot you don't throw it in right away but yeah turn the heat up yeah was, I, I think so other, yeah. yeah I mean because I, I wrote a blog post on this and I couldn't believe it when when I when her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng gave the statement in the House of Commons know outlining their economic program it was kind of i characterize it as naked toryism as open class rule i.e mm. you know all the problems in the country could be solved by giving rich people more money and that was it you know that was her argument there was nothing nothing else to it yeah, and so yeah you could argue budget as uh, they yeah, called it yeah exactly it was a two turbocharged uh, thatcherism but you know Liz Truss was is always someone that who is very very uh, hard or sorry very easy to overestimate if you like she's um so she's incompetent and she's always been known as as being incompetent um and she just made an incredibly reckless and wrong call because she believed that the you know that the tories would be able to win she genuinely believed seemed to believe that people that the view that you give tax cuts to the rich would be popular amongst the wider population because, of course, you know, she taught, spent the summer touring the Conservative Party in the country and finding, you know, Tory activists who were quite happy to, to go along with this. So, you know, if they were happy to go along with this, surely normal people would. And, of course, you know, Rishi Sunak, the present Prime Minister, was able, you know, he argued against this, um, but she just completely ignored it. And so, yeah. And you could make the argument this was an attempt to try and overcome the contradictions that she had been bequeathed her by Boris Johnson. You know, the idea, you know, in her mind, the idea was you'd give tax cuts to the rich. They invest all of that in loads of new industries that creates loads of new jobs. People then kind of drawn into the economy. They get to spend more money. Prosperity is the kind of the general rule and they all vote conservative in 2024 20, 25 and so the decline goes away yeah. of course yeah there, there seemed to it be doesn't... like this her whole growth agenda thing seemed to have an undercurrent of um let's move away from the service economy back to industrialization let's make things again which um britain isn't really set up for we're no. we're, we're terrible at that I, I read today that we're on par with Slovenia when it comes to industrial automation. Mm. We, we, like we're just not a country that makes things. And as kind of a, that kind of atavistic thing again, where mm. you want to go back to, you know, man goes into factory, hits a thing with a hammer for eight, for 12 hours and goes home. Yeah. Rather than someone has a job in email um, PR mm -hmm. marketing consultancy. 
um, there, there seemed to be that element to her her ideas where and at the other end of things she would give so much money to the rich that a they would do that and b it would immiserate uh everyone else to the point where you know they're not going to have a email job in a pr consultancy anymore they're gonna mm-hmm. you know go on the production line um, yeah yeah i think it's kind of i mean I don't, i'm not entirely really sure what what she thought because of course her idea of an industrial renaissance in britain was a very dirty industrial renaissance as well it's mm, get rid of the it. renewables and bring back fossil fuels and fracking mm, <laughs> which is totally yeah. mad <laughs> yeah and i mean is, is that a, a pure cultural thing I, it, it read to me as just as just you know let's uh, let's trigger the li- libs with fracking. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think it's. I think it was more kind of lent itself to anti wokery more than anything else. But of course, you know herself, you know, trust herself was a an oil executive, and fossil fuels are still a key funder of the Conservative Party. So you can't really separate out that interest that lobby interest in the in the Tories from kind of Truss's actions. Though it is interesting that Sunak has again reimposed the ban on um, on fracking today, though it still is yeah. a bit salty around the idea of onshore wind. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that brings us to our, our boy Rishi. Mm. Um, so what, what do you make of him? I don't think he's going to do a good job, unsurprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you kind of see Sunak is kind of you know there's a section of the British journalists of British journalism which has its counterpart in the United States as well who kind of see like you know they look for the grown-up politicians and what what's what defines a grown-up politician a grown-up politician isn't someone who has you know strong ideas that's able to build a coalition in support of those ideas. A grown-up politician is someone who just looks the part. He has a nice haircut, wears a nice suit, invariably a man. You know, might might carry a briefcase. Is kind of fluent and calm with their their delivery. Doesn't really believe in anything. You know, this is what and this and Sunak typifies this. He's kind of like a, you know, he's just a suit really. Mm. Um, Star, like conservative Starmer, in other words. Yeah, pretty much. But also, he's the richest. He's presently the richest politician in Parliament, and he's probably the third richest that we've ever had in Parliament after uh, Lord Salisbury and uh, Zach Goldsmith, who are noted plutocrats. Um, so there's always a question mark that surrounds whether he can relate to ordinary people. Now, in this country. You know, the left do like to kind of think that if someone's rich, people aren't going to necessarily listen to them. And I've always thought that, mm, you know what, well, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah, it's Boris if they Johnson being it. a case yeah. in point there. Yeah, exactly. I, I, recently, I read an article in like Manchester's local paper uh, about people um, after he resigned. And mm. people were, were literally saying, like, he's a man, he understands what ordinary people go through. Yeah. He's uh, he's just a regular guy like me, and he is not even <laughs> more than Rishi Sunak. He is, yeah, a pure aristocrat. He mm. wasn't even born in Britain. He's yeah. yeah, very strange guy, even by British aristocracy standards. Yeah, but you could also because of the carefully confected personality that Johnson has put forward, you could imagine 
not necessarily going for a pint with him, but you could imagine meeting him and having and him listening to you and you having a conversation with him and being able to relate to him on that level. And I think that Sunak, obviously Sunak hasn't got that kind of that, that jokey, jokey personality, but he does come across superficially as someone who's easygoing. You know, he's got an easygoing personality hmm. um, in ways that Liz Truss had a very kind of stern and harsh and kind of brittle and wooden personality. Also a bit like Keir Starmer, I'd suggest. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, but Sunak, I mean, the problems that Sunak has got is that firstly, he's got to try and rebuild the Conservative coalition. And given the points that, you know, the Conservatives are training 30 points in the opinion polls at the moment, that seems like too much of an ask, even if they got the kind of a Tory Superman to take over. And Sunak isn't that. The second problem that Sunak's got is his own party, because the divisions that we've seen um, under Truss and under Johnson haven't gone away. You no, know, the fact that Sunak was appointed, he didn't even face an election of his peers, let alone uh, an election of the party membership. That is also going to be a problem uh, where it comes to legitimacy questions. And the third problem that Sunak has got is he's not very good at politics. You know, he's someone, he was once briefly for about a year, he was the most popular politician in in Britain because in the acute phase of COVID, he bought in the job guarantee scheme, which meant that, you know, millions of people, millions of jobs were were saved, millions of people were saved from destitution because of that. Um, But, you know, he also had been fined by the Metropolitan Police for taking part in COVID parties. Though I do think in Sunak's case, it was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, not that he was kind of deliberately partying um secondly you know his he thought it was hand you know he never thought anything about holding on to a green card to enable him to work in the united states while he was you know still a a sir you know the chancellor of the exchequer in this country and thirdly he didn't think that the fact that his wife had taken advantage of a tax avoidance scheme that meant that it saved her 20 million pounds in tax um he didn't think that that would be a problem until it was pointed out to him and he, and she changed her tax status. So he is quite flat-footed, politically speaking, and I do think that he will stumble sooner rather than later. But that doesn't mean I think, you know, I don't think we're going to see another prime minister before Christmas. I think that because of the instability in the party, I think most will give him an, at least until the local authority elections next May to see how he does. And the press have been much kinder to him than they were to trust and as as we know it's the press who decide who gets to be prime minister in this country that's true but you'll remember the press were kind to trust when she first started and it's only when you know her program was so ridiculous that it stoked interest rates and stoked inflation so it would actually eat into the profits and sales of british capital as a whole Mm. so you know she was dysfunctional for everyone apart from the oil interest and a few hedge funds, which is why the press, you know, turned so sharply against her quite quickly. And I, I don't think, you know, Sunak's not going to do anything like that. It'll be more of a kind of a death death by a thousand cuts before Sunak is laid properly low, I think. And lastly, I mean, what, what can we do about this whole situation? If, if a British person wants to the Tories to get out quicker than... Which is a very sensible thing to want, since they've killed what three hundred thousand people through mm. austerity. Mm-hmm. 
if if we want to get them out quicker than just waiting for our grandparents to die, um, <laughs> it, what what are our options right now? Well, one of the things that the the Tories seem to have forgot is that you know when Margaret Thatcher took on the labour movement in the nineteen eighties, she took groups of workers on individually. So she kind of when she took on the um, the uh, the miners, for example, she settled with the dockers who were also taking strike action. Um, so you don't take everyone on at once, but it seems that this government is hell bent on doing that because at the moment you've got the uh, you know train workers in on on the railways taking strike action. You've got workers in Royal Mail Royal Mail taking strike action. You've got nurses balloting for strike action. You've got other sections of the public sector balloting for strike action. You've got university workers who've just balloted and won a big mandate for strike action. So having all these groups of workers going on into industrial dispute at once, with the Tories in each case very clearly standing behind the employers, that delegitimises the Tories further. That's one thing that someone can do in Britain is make sure they're in their trade union and that they obey strike actions. The second thing, now this is a bit more controversial, the only way to get the Tories out really is to get Labour Party in, you know, short of a, of a revolution. And of course, there are many things wrong with Keir Starmer and a lot of things the Labour Party have done which are pretty awful since he's been the leader. So it's a judgment call as to whether people will be willing to go along with that or not. But it is the case that, that Labour on, are on course to see the Tories dumped out of office um, and so making sure when the general election comes around voting Labour is one way of getting rid of the Tories but for those who aren't that particularly enamoured with the Labour Party for fairly good reasons the other alternatives are you know politically the Green Party is available politically there is lots of small left groups that people might want to get involved in and bring together in some some alliance which has been tried in the past albeit not with two greater levels of success but also there are lots of street movements. There's lots of protest movements. You know, one of the legacies of Jeremy Corbyn is that socialism is alive again in British politics and activism is increasingly a normal thing to do. And so you see things like Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion, you know, drawing radicalised young people into direct action. And of course, direct action itself cannot bring down the Tories, but it's helping raise issues around you know, police brutality and issues around environmental despoliation and climate change that the Tories are incredibly weak on. And so they all have an impact on delegitimising the Tories and making it harder for them to win an election in 2024-25. And after that, making it much harder for them to ever come back, perhaps ever again. That was a nice way, uh, way to end things. <laughs> so... Um... Phil, uh, where can people find you and uh, where can they find the book, more importantly? OK, so um, you can get you can find me on Twitter. I'm at PhilBC3. Um, I have a blog called All That Is Solid, where latest kind of thoughts on the Tories usually appear. Um, I occasionally write for Tribune and Jacobin magazine and also my book. You can order you can find in most good bookshops as they say 
we can order direct from Verso. So if you just look, if you just Google falling down the Conservative Party in the decline of Tory Britain Verso, you'll find it on their pages and it is available in North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not to be confused with the Michael Douglas film of the same name. If you, Definitely if you see that film, it's not going to tell you much about the Tory party. We'll, we'll yeah. tell you a lot about the right wing mindset though. <laughs> so good. Um, good synergy there. Um, so to play us out today, uh, I, I promise new metal, you will get new metal. Phil, do you, do you like system of a down? I do, do like, like system, system of a down? down. Yes. Good. Everyone likes system of a down. They're great. So, um, an artist out of the U S called Lana Del Rabies, she's been making really good, dark industrial electronica for, for years and years now. And, She's just come out with an album called Covers One. It's there's only three on on here. Uh, the other being Cornflake Girl by um, Tori Amos and Every Time by I don't know who song Every Time, but the first song of the EP is Toxicity by System of Down from their absolute classic album Toxicity. Um, when that came out in I, I don't know I think it was like two thousand yeah two thousand one, uh, just before nine eleven. Um, it was crazy. I, I saw them at the Reading Festival that year. I was very young. Uh, everyone in, went insane to Chop Suey, even before it was it was months before being released. Um, huge, huge record for anyone of that era. Um, sorry to Zoomers who have no idea what I'm talking about here. <laughs> but I'd also sorry for Zoomers because you guys are just a worse generation. Um but Lana Del Rabies done a really good electronic cover of Toxicity, the title track of that, that album. Um, it's amazing. Uh, so go get covers one, but most importantly, go get Fallen Down because it is a cracking book about some awful, awful people who, despite being quite, you know, we, could, we all did like normal island jokes, but these people do kill a hell of a lot of people through their policies. Uh, Boris Johnson did the whole let the bodies pile high policy during covid and yeah these are generally terrible people who shouldn't be in power very much longer but um come back uh soon we've got uh a whole um november is going to be pretty much repeater books month uh we've got um philippa snow to talk about uh can't remember the title now. Uh, as you know, this means violence. Uh, we've got the head of Repeater Books, uh, Tariq Goddard, to talk about uh, his book, High John the Conqueror. We've got uh, Alan Moore. Well, not the Alan Moore. He's not coming on the show. We can finagle that. That'd be amazing, though. Um, his uh, short story collection. Grant Morrison, again, probably not the actual guy. We really, really tried to talk to his press people about that. Um, his book, Luda, is amazing. Um, and plus a bunch of other stuff. Oh, uh, Cormac McCarthy has a new novel, two new novels out, in fact, uh, and we're going to be talking about them. We'll probably be talking about anime and video games because we're dumb, dumb people. Uh, here is Lana Del Rey talking about toxicity. Uh, Lana Del Rey covering toxicity. Oops. And out. Good stuff. <laughs> 